Hear the word of God from Revelation chapters 2 and 3, a message to three of seven churches. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown." Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives." Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come, that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Yay, more book of Revelation. So good morning, church family. I hope you're doing well on this gorgeous and beautiful Sunday. Um, I hope you guys had fun last week at our community group sign up and um, back to school bash. I don't know about you guys, but um, I had a blast. It was so good to hang out with everybody, be together outside, have a good time. I saw people running through the obstacle course. Is Katie Walker here? Because I saw her flying. I saw some of the adults going through the obstacle course, and I was like, seriously? Like, if I even thought about trying, my back starts hurting. Like, I'm just way too old for this kind of stuff. But I'm glad most of you guys had fun. Who, who, who went through the obstacle course last week? All right, well done. All right. Who can claim to be the fastest of them all? <laughs> I love it. Good job. I love it. Be proud of it. It's just so good to celebrate for all of you guys. And if you haven't had a chance to sign up for a community group yet, like if you weren't here last week or you have no idea what I'm talking about, please email Pastor Eric, eric at waypointrdu.com. He will get you connected to a community group. We believe in our community groups. Not because they're full of the best people in the world, even though I love these people, 
but because we believe God does something incredible in small communities. We believe he does something incredible in the bodies together. We believe that we're better together than apart. And we believe the church is more than just once a week coming on Sunday type of thing. So please sign up for these community groups, gather together, and um, just I promise you it'll do something amazing to your walk. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation. And last week, I hope you saw a vision of the majesty and the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's what I hope you saw last week. You saw his majesty, how incredible he is, how big he is, how powerful he is. But in the midst of that majesty, I would love that you saw the mercy of Jesus. This week, we're looking to the letters that were sent to the seven churches found in chapters two and three. Uh, this is actually going to be a two-part sermon with the next part happening two weeks from today. So the first part of this two-part sermon is today. Next week, because it's our missions conference, we're going to actually jump a little bit to Revelation four and five and have a kind of a more of a missional direction in our sermon. And then coming back to chapters two and three and finishing up our second part of our sermon to the churches, our letters to the churches. So it's kind of a two-part, if that makes sense. Today's the first part. So let's look at the churches that Jesus is addressing in John's writing. Revelation's seven churches were among a number of early Christian communities in Asia Minor. These particular seven churches may have been chosen to receive this message because geographically, the churches were located along an established trade route that brought together the most populous and influential parts of the province. Once the message was given to the churches in these prominent cities, the message would spread to the Christian communities in the rest of the province. And also the number seven is intentional here, just like the seven lampstands. It's meant to convey the whole of God's people. So this message is also meant for all the churches during that time and on. So here are the churches and here where they're historically known for. There's a map I'm going to put on the screen. And these are, that circle area is kind of, if you zoom in, that's the area we're talking about. And the map on the left is where actually those churches are. So it's actually a circular route that you would go on to visit all the churches. Does that make sense? Do you see that over there? Ephesus is the first church. It's the gateway to Asia Minor. It was located at a major harbor on the Aegean Sea and housed one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. The church was founded by Paul there and one of the most prominent churches in all of Asia Minor, Ephesians. If you guys want to think about Ephesus, Ephesians. The next one is Smyrna, the home of Homer and the Temple of Athena. It is a beautiful, bustling seaport. It actually is where Polycarp, the famous bishop, was later bishop in the second century. Pergamus is the location of Rome's provincial capital, major cultural hub that housed a library rivaling the famed Alexandrian Library. Theatira is founded under Alexander the Great, was noted for its trade, particularly purple dye. Lydia, one of Paul's converts, came from this area. Sardis is the ancient capital of the Lydian kingdom, was situated atop a plateau and uh, experienced a series of foreign conquests. Philadelphia is called the gateway to the east, was renowned for its grapes, textiles, and other leather goods. And Laodicea, the ancient capital of Phrygia, gained wealth through its trade and banking and also known for its medical school and costly fabrics. And you guys are like, I needed to know all that information. Let me tell you why, and I'm just going to be real with you. There's a reason why. Because the book of Revelation is confusing to understand at best, right? But here's why. Because there's so much in the book of Revelation. The writer of the book, John, has brought in so much of what he knew relationally with the churches that he ministered to, brought in with historically what was happening and what those churches historically had about it. You'll see as we talk about it that there's a church who was conquered and destroyed, or that was destroyed and rebuilt recently. 
And it talks about how Jesus came to death and life, and he t- they tied that together. There's beautiful, this, the writer is writing with knowledge of the people, then he's writing with knowledge of the city itself. Right? Are you with me so far? And then they're writing with so much of the Old Testament involved. Almost everything in the book of Revelation is referring back to the Old Testament. You guys remember last week I said out of, um, there's one to two references to the Old Testament out of every single verse in the book of Revelation. Not, not literally, like some verses have like 10, but I'm saying if you average it out. And so it's difficult to understand because they actually have a really good way of interpreting the book of Revelation. Is it helps to know the people, to know the culture, to know the city, to know the history, and to know the Old Testament, right? And not that many people have the opportunity to be like, well, you know, I'm the expert on the city of Philadelphia. Not many people can say I know all about Asia Minor. Most of us would be here like, where is Asia Minor? Right? Is, is China? Korea? I don't know. I don't know where Asia Minor is. You have no clue. But so what I'm hoping to do for you is as I give you a little bit of background information, it shows you almost a little bit of the hermeneutical method. How do we read and interpret well together? Does that make sense? My goal is not just to say, hey, I'm going to share this information. You should just believe it. I want to empower you to also know how to read and also know how to interpret yourself. You guys with me on this? That's kind of a side note. I just want to go down into you. All right. So as we look at the addresses to the seven churches, they take on a similar pattern. And this is another methodology in reading and interpreting scripture, noticing patterns, right? If you were a literature major, if you, you read books, that was one of the things that if you, read, if you did high school, think of your high school English class, right? And you're thinking, oh, let's read To Kill a Mockingbird. What are some patterns? What are some motifs? What are some uh, themes? These are all things that you also need to do when you read the scripture as well. Okay, you're like, oh man, I hated English class. I'm sorry. First of all, it starts off with a greeting to the angel of the church in. Then it goes to a title, a title of the risen Christ, usually taken from an image seen in chapter one, right? It's usually taken like, to the title of it, and it says, um, from you know, the G- Jesus who is the first and the last. And that's usually an image taken from chapter one of the big, beautiful vision of Jesus. Actually, in our staff meeting this past Wednesday, Megan noted that um, this often, the way Jesus was introduced often had something to do with combating the issue the church was facing. She felt like there was a tie or correlation of the way Jesus introduced in such a manner how actually helped fight against the issue or the warning that the people in that church were struggling with. The next is uh, the I know section. I know your deeds. I know what's going on. That is a criticism of the church, except for the case of Smyrna and Philadelphia. Then there's a warning, an exhortation, and then a promise. And this is the, the, the kind of the structure of all seven of, the, of these letters. There's a little bit of difference here and there, just in the sense that there's no criticism for the case of Smyrna and Philadelphia. And the case of Philadelphia and Laodicea, the warning and exhortation are just kind of flipped. But either way, this is a general pattern of how the letters were written to these seven churches. Now, as we dive into this, I want to split up our time in our, into a two-parter, and I'm going to divide it up into positive churches and negative churches, because we don't have time to go through all seven of them. So today we read three of them, and as a matter of fact, I'm going to make a kind of a, uh, kind of a, a leadership call right now and only do two of the churches of the positive churches. I'm not going to do all three, it's just for a matter of sake of time. But I did this in a way because I want us to focus on the positive churches first. Right? And most people typically focus on the negative, then they go, oh, finish with the positive. But I want to focus on the positive first, and there's a few reasons for that. Number one, I'm, I'm one of those guys that words like affect me. I'm a words of affirmation kind of guy. So like, if somebody says something nice to me, I'm like, yay, I'm happy. 
thank you. I appreciate that. You know, if my wife says, oh, you look good today, buddy. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Or also one of those guys, if somebody says, uh, oh, uh, something bad about me, I'm like, oh, it gets sad. Right? I'm just, I just, words have power, and, and positive words really, so I'm one of those guys, like, if, if you need to criticize somebody, I'll say, like, two positive things first, then you're so good at this, and you're awesome at that, but, um, yeah, you need to work on this. That's kind of the way I am. So I wanted us to start with the positive first. But I also want to say this. I feel like the church at large has been taking some hits. Some of them self-inflicted. Some of them definitely self-inflicted. The church has struggled. We've made so many mistake after mistake after mistake. But I feel like he's taking so many hits. And I wanted us to start positive about the church first. Because I want us a little bit to rave about the bride of Christ a little. Is it okay? I just want us to be like, you know, the bride of Christ is beautiful. It's flawed. There are some issues. But it is gorgeous. And it has changed history. And it has affected the world. I know we've struggled. I know we have our struggles, but man, can we just, I wanted to focus on the positive a little bit first. Is that okay? Are we cool with that? Yeah. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> so let's talk about the letter to Smyrna first, okay? If you were to take a jaunt from Ephesus to Smyrna, you would, you would cover a distance of about 35 miles to the north, entering Smyrna by what was called the Ephesian Gate. Smyrna was a wealthy city, second only to Ephesus in the entire area. And like Ephesus, it was a seaport. So to this church, Jesus is introduced as the one who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. This is all, guys, Revelation chapter 2. If you guys are in there, you can open your Bibles to that spot. The church at Smyrna is one that the one who is eternal became incarnate and died. A reminder that even the eternal Son of God willingly became subject to the rejection and persecution of man. Like Christ, the church at Smyrna should anticipate ultimate victory. And even as the grave could not hold Christ, he is now described as the one who lives, symbolizing his triumph over death, rejection, and so much more. So they too, the church in Smyrna, could also anticipate ultimate victory. These features of the person and work of Christ are especially adapted for words of encouragement to the church in Smyrna, who is undergoing trial and affliction. The word Smyrna itself means myrrh. Do you guys know what myrrh is? Anybody? Anybody? I heard somebody sniffing. That's right. Good job. Instead of just saying it, I love the sniffing too. <laughs> it's a perfume, right? Something that smells good. It's used in embalming dead bodies. also used in anointing oil in worship. And the city itself actually has been historically destroyed and rebuilt. And I love this connection. It's like, like Christ who died, he came to life again. This city was also dead and came to life again. And they're making that connection. They're also saying, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And I love how Jesus starts these letters with this beautiful phrase I spoke about last week. He knows. He knows these churches intimately. He walks amongst the lampstands. Remember we said that last week? He walks amongst the lampstands. He walks amongst them. He knows this church intimately. Guys, can I just tell you this? He walks amongst us. He knows Waypoint intimately. He knows us. He walks amongst us. And to the church in Smyrna, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. What is this afflictions and poverty? The word for poverty here used is, not, is, is more like abject poverty. Not just poor, but destitute. And now it may be possible that the believers were all really poor people, but most scholars believe that their poverty came from persecution. 
So these are believers who are persecuted, and not just by the Romans, but by the Jews as well. And so in this persecution, they lost everything and became poor. They became destitute. You see, Jews were exempt from worshiping the Roman Empire because they were recognized as an ancient monotheistic religion. So when the Jewish nations were conquered, they were like, okay, we accept as a Roman Empire. They're like, well, we have all these other religions and all these people under our rule. And so we accept if their religion has been longstanding, they can still worship their religion. They don't have to worship Caesar as God like everybody else does. And so in the beginning, Christianity was considered a Jewish sect and fell under this exemption as well. But after Nero, however, the authorities began to see Christianity as a separate religion, and the Jews started reporting the Christians to the authorities. So under this type of persecution and poverty, that's what they're facing. In this. That's what most of these churches are facing. They're facing persecution. That's why John was exiled. He was facing persecution. And it's under this persecution, under this poverty, where all their goods, all their stuff was stripped away from them, that the Jews actually betrayed them and said, they're, they're not with us, don't, don't count them with us, they're not a sect of us, go take all their money away. They were, under this poverty, Jesus uses intentional language, he calls them rich. What made them Rich. I can say, I mean, it makes sense in that language. Be like, okay, I know you're poor, but, um, but you got a lot of other things. Or you're poor, but you're, it's, it's like um, Sharon was making fun of my singing voice today. And she said I was a terrible singer. And in the midst of her saying that, but you're good at other things. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. I understand that. I get it. I'm not trying to be a good singer. I never said I was. I'm just saying. It's one of those situations where you, when you think, when you're not good at something, when you call somebody, oh, you, you're poor, you don't give them, like, but the very, you don't contradict what they are. You don't go up to a very poor person and say, oh, but you're actually really rich. You just don't know it. No, the poor person can be like, no, I'm poor. I'm destitute. I don't have enough to eat. I have no money. Don't call me rich. But Jesus intentionally called them rich. What made them rich? Later, later in the passage, it says, they receive the victor's crown. In other words, the bestowing of the identity that Christ has purchased for them made them rich. They're rich because they know who they are and know that they're children of the victorious one. They're co-heirs. It's going to the poor pauper. It's going to the poor kid on the street and say, hey, do you know who you really are? You're the son of the king. That makes you rich. That makes you have everything you ever needed because you're now what you craved more than anything else you have. Guys, can I tell you what makes us rich? You know why being rich is so important in America right now and for the world and for us? It's because honestly, that's what we crave the most. Right? Money makes us rich. Money makes us rich because that's what we crave the most because we think money gives us security and pleasures and whatever it is that we want. If we crave something else more than we money and we had that something else, then that would make us rich. By craving that thing, by getting that thing that we crave more than anything else would make us the most rich. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're rich because what their hearts craved more than anything else they got. They have a relationship with God. They got to be known fully loved and called to purpose. They could be called co-heirs alongside Jesus. They could withstand any persecution, any destitution, all because they knew how rich they were. Now, as we dive into the scripture together, the question that typically arises when people hear the scripture read or when they read the scripture to the church is, what's up with the 10 days? 
Anybody else think that when the scripture was read? Anybody else? What does 10 days mean, right? Scholars have pondered the allusion to the 10 days. And to be honest, the best way to interpret this is often based on how you read the whole book of Revelation. So if some, if the church in Smyrna is taken as a representative of the church in persecution. So in other words, it wasn't meant to be written to a specific church, but to the idea of church in persecution in the second or third century. Then 10 days is representative of a period of time. A scholar assumed that the seven churches correspond to church history. There's another viewpoint, is that in church history, these are seven churches represent seven epochs of church history. Does that make sense? So one scholar would say that, is it not obvious that the 10 days of persecution during which Satan would cast some of this church into prison refers to one of the seven church epochs to which the seven churches correspond? then the 10 days of persecution must refer to the 10 persecutions of secular history during which great numbers of Christians were imprisoned and slain. Over these martyrs, the second death will have no power. In other words, looking at historical time from here past 2,000 years, they're dividing it up into multiple times of persecution, times of kind of church growth, and they're saying that 10, 10 days must equate to 10 large times or periods of great persecution that happened in the church. Does that make sense? He's kind of, they're expounding it upon historical timeline. That's one interpretation. Some have found the 10 specific periods of persecution in these centuries. Um, Walter Scott quotes wide itemizing 10 pagan persecutions that, as followed. The first under Nero in 54, the second under Domitian in 81, the third under Trajan in 98, fourth under Adrian or Hadrian in 117, fifth under Septimius Severus in 193, sixth under Maximin in 235, seventh under Decius, Decius 249, 8th under Valerian, 254, 9th under Aurelian, 270, and the 10th under Diocletian in 284. So there are others who said in this 300-year period, there are these 10 persecutions of these Roman empires, and that's what it means in the first, second century, or third, first, second, and third centuries. Some have applied the 10 days to the 10 years of persecution under Diocletian. But most commentators take the reference to 10 days as a symbolic representation of a specific period of time. Walter Scott writes this, for instance. The expression 10 days signifies a limited period, a brief time inconsistent with the lengthened period of pagan persecutions covering 250 years. The following reference to 10 days will confirm the meaning of the term as implying a brief and limited time. Just these other references. Alfred states the expression is probably used to signify a short and limited time. And what they're saying is this 10 days is not a literal time. It's used to signify an amount of time that just would occur without a set date or completion number to it. Does that make sense? So if you were to use to say the term like 40 days or these other numbers that have historical reference to the Old Testament, you might have gotten a little bit better. 10 days has historical reference. In other words, its historical completion is not a days of completion. It's a set limited time. If you would have used the days 40 days, that would have meant something a little bit more different and a little more significant regards to length of time. But the 10 days meant for a short while you may suffer. Does that make sense? And these other passages in the Old Testament affirm that interpretation. So, it's clear in any case, whichever way you define it, the church of Smyrna could expect further persecution, including imprisonment for some of their number. But the call is still clear. We're to not be afraid because the shortness of this tribulation and suffering is just not comparable to what we have in Jesus. Can I tell you something, guys? I'll just be real with you guys. I'm willing to endure short, 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 short amounts of pain for good reward. For example, 
right? I'm willing to be like, oh, I'll take a shot if the doctor tells me to take a shot because even though that pain of the shot is extreme and I don't like it, I will do it because it will save me the pain of other things in the future, right? I'm willing to endure. I'm willing to lift something heavy, you know, that I don't want to do and cause pain to my muscles for the reward of being able to work out and do better physically, whatever it may be. Right? Here's the deal. I think most of us are willing to endure something. If I said to you, hey, can I p- pinch you for like a dollar? You might be like, no, it's a dollar. Right? For, per pain, not equivalent. Right? Not worth it. But if I say, can I pinch you for $10,000? You'd be like, sure, here's my arm. Right? You got to do it in comparison to the thing that you get versus the amount of pain and the shortness of the pain. Right? If I said you're going to suffer in pain for 100 years, there's a difference between like, ooh, that's, 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 that's tough. But if I say you're going to suffer in pain for 10 seconds, you're like, okay, I can handle that, depending on the reward. My people can hear me very well. Number one, the reward is vast and infinite and better than anything you could ever imagine. It's so good. To taste and see that the Lord is good. To know your identity as a beloved child. To, to know that God is with you, not against you. To feel loved and to have purpose and to be known. It's so good. But let me also tell you this. The pain will be short in comparison. What it is that you suffer for his name, what it is that you endure in persecution, in comparison, it will be short. So will you look at it and weigh the cost? Amen? Um, I'm actually going to skip Pergamum today. I'll switch it over and I'll kind of punt that. That's a good one to kind of punt over next week because it also has good and bad in it. So I'm just going to stick with the good churches. So Philadelphia. The message to the church in Philadelphia is, in some respects, one of the most interesting of all the messages. Here's a church which was faithful to Christ and the word of God. The city of Philadelphia is itself, known in modern times as Alice, Alice Seher, is located in Lydia, some 28 miles southeast of Sardis, and it was named after the king of Pergamos, Adelis Philadelphus, who built the city. The city of Philadelphia had a long history and several times was completely destroyed by earthquakes. The most recent rebuilding was in 17 AD. The land area of Philadelphia was rich in agricultural value, but had noticeable uh, tokens of previous volcanic action. Grapes were one of the principal crops, and keeping with this, Dionysus was one of the chief objects of pagan worship, who was the Greek god of wine. The message addressed to the church in Philadelphia has the unusual characteristic of being entirely a word of praise, similar to that of Smyrna, but in sharp contrast to the one that comes after, Laodicea. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. This address starts off by identifying Christ as the one who is holy and true. And I love that, holy and true. He's affirming this is who he is. This is, this is the Jesus, the God that we worship. He's holy and true. But then it says this awesome phrase, holding the keys of David. What is he referring to? Holding the keys of David. In Revelation 1, he's declared to have the keys of hell and death. He holds the keys of hell and death. But I think the allusion seems to be coming from Isaiah chapter 22, where speaking of Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, is recorded saying this, the key of the house of David will lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Eliakim had the key to all the treasures of the king, and when he opened the door, it was open, and when he closed the door, it was closed. Christ was the great antitype of Eliakim, has the key to the riches of the kingdom. 
to the church of Philadelphia surrounded by heathendom and wickedness, Christ gives the assurance that he has the power to open and keep open the door to the kingdom. Do you guys hear what this is saying? This is a bold proclamation. And what what Jesus is saying is that I am the holy one, I am the true one, and I hold the keys to the kingdom. And what he's saying is that, like in Isaiah, this guy had the keys to the kingdom and he he was able to open the treasury. He says, the fullness of the treasury, the fullness of the kingdom of God, the fullness of dwelling in the kingdom of God, I have the power to keep open for you. Jesus is the way to the kingdom and the power to keep the kingdom open. Right? I love that, by the way. That's one of those hyperlinks that we talk about where you just click on the link and it takes you right back to Isaiah. Then it says, I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Jesus says to the church, as the other churches, I know you. I know that you have little strength and you have kept my word, not denied my name. What an awesome statement. Like, can I be honest with you guys? I love this letter a little bit more, mainly because I was born in Philadelphia. So I feel a little bit of a connection to Philly. So to me, this feels like Philly. You know, like, I know it's not actual, not Philadelphia, because that would probably, do, I'm, just, I'm not trying to trash that city or anything, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not that Philadelphia. But I kind of love it. I don't know why, I just feel this connection to it, this, this correlation to it, because I feel like in many ways, if you compare New York, Philly, Philadelphia kind of feels like compared to New York and these other cities, it's like it's the little guy. I know it's not a little city, but I just kind of feel like it's a smaller guy the not successful guy, you know, compared to Philly and New York and all these other big cities, Philly just kind of looks a little, the sports team aren't doing as well, you know, the, you know what I'm saying, they're not that terrible, but compared to like these other major cities, it just doesn't feel like it competes as well. In my mind, Philly's like Rocky, right? You guys know, where's Rocky from, anybody? Philadelphia, right? The smaller, kind of little less athletic, a little weaker guy, but has the heart. And I almost feel like this church is like that. You know, they, they stood fast during tribulation and persecution. They did it not out of strength, not out of wealth, not out of might. Instead, in weakness, they showed what true strength and might is. Waypoint Church, can I tell you that we so often, not just we, but us as people, as Christians, as, as church in America, we look at the wrong things that make a church mighty. Right? We look at that budget. Right? What's, what's that budget say? You know, is, is there a lot of digits in that budget? Yeah, that's a mighty church. Right? Maybe buildings? That's a nice building. Right? Uh, the caliber of the powerful people in the church? How many? You guys have politicians in your church or, or whatever it may be? We look at the wrong things. Maybe how big the college ministry or student ministry is, how young it is, or how great the band sounds, and how awesome the choir is. I'm not saying, by, by the way, our choir and band are awesome. I'm not saying this is not negative. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. How dynamic is that preacher? We look at the wrong things and see what's mighty. I bet you if we looked at the church in Philadelphia, what we would not see are the things that would show up as mighty in our culture. I bet you we would see people praying. I bet you we would see people in utter need. People who are persecuted but still overflowed with joy. People who cared about each other. People who actually would listen and say, I don't have much, but what I have is yours. People who would want to know who the other one is. People who would be willing to die and sacrifice themselves for each other. Guys, why is our definition of mighty so wrong? Where did it go wrong? 
This is mighty. The question that jumps out at me at most people when they read this is this passage that says, verse, chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I'll also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Is that confusing to anybody else? Or is it like, huh? Yes? Or are you like, oh, yeah, rapture. I'm just kidding. No? Nobody? I'm just, I was just wondering. I was just curious. I just wanted to know. There are many people who are confused by this passage. There are some who swear it means that they'll forego facing tribulation because there's a rapture coming and they'll forego it because the rapture and then tribulation will come and tribulation force, the book will happen, you know, or the movie. A useful key to understanding can be found in looking at what the purpose of what they're being kept from was, right? What were they being kept from? Trials to test inhabitants of the earth. And a verse that comes to my mind is one also in John's letter to the churches, where actually in Laodice, uh, later on, is Luke talk, Luke, Jesus talks about lukewarm believers and says, by gold tried in the fire. Peter also uses the concept of gold tried in the fire in regard to trial of our faith in 1 Peter 1. In other words, a trial or a testing serves wonderful purpose in making us into pure gold. It isn't always promised in the same manner every time, but it serves a purpose. Dr. Benson states, I don't think it's unreasonable to conclude the promise of Revelation 3.10 has to do with faithfulness in the life of a believer, causing God to keep them from a process of refining they don't need to experience. Read the verse again, it says, an hour of. And I think this verse speaks the same wisdom to our generation as it did to theirs. You try gold to purify it. This verse is not talking about God's wrath, but a work of purification. God does not chasten his children, but, but not necessarily, God does chasten his children, but not unnecessarily times God keeps us from trials and tribulations. There are times he allows him to try us or even chastise us, and there are times he allows suffering for his glory, such as persecution or even martyrdom. We need to have a heart to trust him in whatever tribulations God allows to come our way. 1 Peter 4, 19 says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And what this is saying, what this, all that commentary basically is saying is, yes, there are times where God uses trials before us, and he may give us trials to, to purify us and to refine us, but he also may not give us trials at the time. And I want, I want, I want you to understand that, isn't that just one of those obvious things that we can see in our Christian life, isn't it? It's hard to understand, but we can see it every day. We can look at our own lives and be like, okay, I'm going through some ridiculously tough trials right now, Right? What does that mean? Does that mean that I'm, I struggle more and God has more refining to do, but that person next to me who's not going through those trials has a lot less refining to do? No. It doesn't mean that. But does it mean also then that if I'm not going through trials, that means like, whew, I'm, I must be pretty good. Guys, what it means is that God will will different purposes and different times of sanctifying behavior at your times, at different, different times and different situations in your life, and we don't know when that's going to be. And so at times that he'll say, hey, right now, you're not going to go through that trial. Right now is not the time for you to go through that difficult thing. But then there will be that time when you do. And in either case, can you say, God, your will be done. It is good. Does that make sense? I know that's such a hard thing to hear because you're like, you want an answer. You want an answer right now. Say, why, God, why did you give me that disease? Why did you make it so hard? Why did you take that person away from me? Why is my life so difficult? Why did I lose my job? And you're like, okay, you can say, oh, God, you're sanctifying me. You're giving a trial. Okay, I'm being made more like a manager. But God, that person doesn't have to go through this right now. 
Why doesn't that person have to go through this? And so you compare yourself, and what this passage, I want you to hear this, is sometimes he gives you trials, sometimes he doesn't, but either way, that moment, whatever's happening in that is meant for you. And he will use either trials to refine you or a cooling period to temper you. Either way, God is working and moving in you. Will you trust in the one who is forging? Does that make sense? Are you guys with me on that? I hope that makes sense. Reason I wanted to skip and go a little fast, because I'm, I'm running along, I'll, I'll try to close this part out really fast, is I want to close today trying something a little different and very strange. I'll be honest with you, this is risky. But I'm doing it anyway, because I love you guys, and I feel like you guys will forgive me. I want us to write a letter to Waypoint Church based on what we think God, Jesus would write to us. And here's what I mean by that. I want us to write a letter... Not a negative one, because we'll do that two weeks from now. <laughs> I want us to do a positive one first, because like I said before, I think sometimes we're really harsh on ourselves, and we're harsh on our church, aren't we? We listen to podcasts, and we read stories, scandalous, salacious stories of leaders who fall and all these terrible things that churches do. And don't get me wrong, I, rep- I hate that, and as a church, we've done, spent many times lamenting and repenting of the ch- sins of the church, universal. So we, own, we, we don't brush it under the rug, we own our sin here at Waypoint Church. So I'm not trying to brush anything under the rug, but I think I want to start off with us, is I want to rave about the bride. I want to tell the bride how beautiful she is. I want to talk about the bride a little bit. And I want to say what an amazing bride we have. And I'm just going to be honest with you guys, and I want to start this off. I want to rave about you guys. I love you guys. I thank God for the church that he's given us. We get to be family together in this place and walk in the mission of advancing his kingdom together. So here's what I want to do. I forgot to bring my pen. Can I borrow a pen, somebody? Thank you. First thing that I want us to do is this. Number one, what attribute of God do you think of Jesus that do you think Jesus wants us to hear and feel about himself first right now? Anybody? What attribute of Jesus, like he said, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died and was born again. I'm the one with bronze feet, bronze legs. What attribute do you, want, do you think Jesus wants us at Waypoint Church to be like, hey, to the church, to the angel at the church at Waypoint? Love? What else? Say it again, Matt. Refuge. Refuge. Faithful. 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 Compassion. Okay. Now. As he walks amongst us, as he sees us, when he says, I know this about you. I know this about your heart and the way you do whatever it may be. What is he going to point out? What does he know about Waypoint? Serve others. Humble. Sincere. 
gracious. Anything else? Okay. What word of exhortation, what warning may he give us? Make sure you do what? Make sure you act in what way? Make sure something. Ooh. Okay. What else? Louder. Build each other up. Now, a promise of blessing, specifically anything that you might have heard in Scripture, a promise of blessing from Scripture. How about he will be with us? Say that one more time. Good. Good. Okay. Waypoint Church, will you hear this? Will you hear this word? To the angel at the church of Waypoint, these are the words of Jesus, our King. I am love. I am your refuge. I am the faithful one who is compassionate over all of you. I know your heart. I know your heart to serve others, to be humble. You're sincere and you're genuine. You're gracious, and you have a heart to hear and to serve. Waypoint, make sure you don't forget your first love. Make sure that you do not get complacent and lazy, but pursue righteousness. Build each other up. You are one in me. Build each other up. And know that I will be with you. I'm faithful to complete the good work that I've started amongst you. I will unite you. My spirit will create unity in you. And I am before all things, and I hold all things together, and it is by my might you will advance. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these letters to the churches. Letters that you written and provided so many years ago that still speak to us today. God, thank you that in the letters that we know that we are known. God, we are known that you walk amongst us. Even, here's what's crazy, even amongst the churches that were doing terrible things, you still know them and you walk amongst them and you call them to you. So even in the midst of struggle and the midst of bad things, you know us and you love us and you pursue us. But God, in the midst of raving about your bride, God, we love your bride. 
God, we love the church universal, the bride that you've redeemed and you've called to yourself that you're perfecting and you're presenting is incredibly beautiful. But we also love the church local. God, we thank you for the word you have for Waypoint. May we receive it. God, may we grow in it. And may we, may we hold fast to you, our first love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.